Welcome to episode 53 of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, and I'll be leading the discussion today with co-host Kara Goucher as we are excited to welcome Olympic swimmer Gary Hall Jr. to the show. Gary Hall is a 10-time medalist with five gold medals in the Olympics. He specialized in the sprints, the 50 and the 100 freestyle, so he was good at going fast over very short distances. He was known for his personality on the pool deck, and he was also known for speaking out on doping during his career. His story is a fascinating one. It includes not only competing and earning medals at the Olympics, but also competing as a professional athlete with type 1 diabetes. You will hear in this interview that he is not afraid to speak his mind, which I think you will enjoy. So let's jump to it. Here we go with Gary Hall Jr. Hey everybody, welcome to the latest episode of the Clean Sport Collective podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung. I am joined by co-host Kara Goucher. How are you doing today, Kara? I'm doing great, Chris. I'm in my son's closet so no one can bug me, and I'm super <laughs> excited about our guest today. Your new podcast studio. That's amazing. <laughs> but yes, we also have an amazing guest. Gary Hall Jr. is joining us. How are you doing today, Gary? I'm doing great. Hello. Well, we would love to go back in time and talk a little bit first about the younger Gary Hall. And we know you didn't start swimming till a little bit later before ultimately becoming an Olympian at 21. But before you were a swimmer, what were you like as a kid? And did you do other sports? Uh, I played lots of different sports. And uh, that is the best approach. Uh, in a survey conducted with uh, 2012 Olympians from all sports, um, somewhere around 80% of them played multiple sports through high school. Um, so I also serve proudly on uh, an organization, a national organization under the American College of Sports Medicine, the National Youth Sports Health and Safety Institute. And we're partnered with the largest uh, collector of sports medicine data out there. And we know uh, now that um, a, a multi-sport approach is, is, uh, produces better athletes. Um, and, uh, you know, the Michael Phelps, the early specialization cases like Tiger Woods, those, those are the anomaly. Um, so I was uh, fortunate to be able to play. Um, and I wasn't great in, uh, you know, any of these other sports, but it really uh, developed me uh, into a better swimmer, ultimately. Um, but uh, also, uh, it contributed to uh, my ability, the, the longevity uh, of my career. I retired from competitive swimming at age 34. And had I not participated in multiple sports growing up, I feel like I, I would have felt like I missed out on something. Um, and, and that was not the case. I was able to kind of um, choose my sport at 13 and um, kind of take some ownership of it. And uh, I kind of took it from there. What else did you play before? Uh, I did uh, baseball uh, for a few seasons. Uh, I did uh, soccer for a season or two. Um, I, I loved basketball. Um, played up until high school. And um, then in high school, I was on the uh, track and field team. I did long jump and high jump. Um, and, and just um, pick up games of, of basketball. I, I played tennis for a, a period of time. Uh, I still love tennis. I was able to circle back to it. And that's my go-to now in, in terms of just uh, maintaining health and being physically uh, fit. Um, so, yeah, all those uh, sports uh, served me well. 
So you grew up in an Olympic family of sorts. Your dad also a three-time Olympian as a swimmer. What was that like? Was there any pressure from your dad or your uncle who was also a swimmer or grandfather? Yeah, so um, my grandfather, maternal grandfather, was a collegiate champion um, in the years after World War II when they didn't have the Olympic Games. So uh, the collegiate championship was the fastest swim meet in the world at that time. Um, he won there, and, and uh, he had six kids, my mom being one, and, and she met my father at a swim meet at a swimming pool that my grandfather built. My uh, father was a swimmer from Southern California on scholarship uh, at Indiana University under the legendary coach Doc Councilman. He was on that team with Mark Spitz and uh, Jim Montgomery. There are a n- number of other great names. It is considered a golden era of, of swimming. And uh, he held 10 world records, was world swimmer of the year twice. He was the first and only swimmer to ever carry the flag for the United States of America at the Olympic Games up until Michael Phelps did in these last Olympics. And uh, yeah, it generally liked. So I was introduced to this world of Olympic swimming at a very, as far back as I can remember. Um, and, and, and there was some benefit in the familiarity around a swimming pool and the swimming community. People that would come up and say, oh, I knew your dad or we swam on a team together or something like that. Uh, that was a benefit. Um, but you're right. I mean, there is a lot of pressure, um, you know, and, and expectations to follow in your father's footsteps. We share the same name. I'm junior. Um, so, you know, people expected big things out of me once I started uh, swimming competitively. And uh, fortunately, those expectations and pressure did not come from my father. Uh, it just would not have worked uh, based on my personality and how I would have responded uh, to my father uh, being pushy in in that way. Um, He wanted me to be involved in sport, uh, to develop some discipline, uh, some structure, some work ethic, uh, that type of stuff. And that's all he wanted. He, he, He didn't um, you know, expect me to, to win or, or you know, uh, follow in his footsteps by going to the Olympic Games. Gary, how did you handle that sort of expectation from other people? I'm so curious as someone who ran in the Olympics and my husband ran in the Olympics, there's so much pressure on our son in this community. And, and I can't even imagine for you with a father and a grandfather and an uncle that were Olympic swimmers and that won medals. Um, how did you manage that? Um, <clears throat> you know, most of the time I, I was pretty oblivious. I, I think I was uh, diagnosed with attention deficit disorder pretty young. And so, uh, had that uh, sweet oblivion <laughs> going on where, you know, if, if the pressure was present, uh, most of the time I was too distracted, uh, with, uh, just kind of horsing around and having fun and, and doing my own thing, uh, to really get to me. Um, and I didn't really care that much what other coaches or swimmers in the community wanted out of me, you know? And so, um, but it is, I, I mean, uh, a lot of people, um, gosh, uh, Andre Agassiz, uh, and Steffi Graf, uh, could write, um, have like a sponsorship before it was even born. Uh, you know, so it was like, it wasn't at that level, uh, where there was that type of expectation, but, um, yeah, I definitely was aware of it. Um, uh, even if it was uh, for short periods of time before I was distracted with something else. So what eventually drew you into swimming? You said you got into it at 13. 
Yeah, you know, I um, <clears throat> went right in uh, to a uh, year-round uh, two practices a day before and after school. So by the time I got to high school, it was really the summer after my eighth grade year. Um, I was I was training heavy. Um, I had a, a French Canadian coach who was uh, just a distance monster, and you know we were training upwards of twenty thousand meters a day over Christmas training camps that could go up to thirty thousand meters a day. It's just outrageous yardage, wow. and um, and so I, I I was a terrible swimmer doing that. I and it wasn't just because I, I was I was young. I was just I was physiologically not built to handle that type of yardage. I a fast twist muscle fiber makeup. And so it'd be asking and I remember getting into these heated debates um, as a sophomore in high school with my swim coach saying in track and field the guys that run the 100-meter dash don't do any training similar to the cross country teams. It's both running but totally different events and, and, and different training. But in swimming, everybody, it doesn't matter if you swim the mile or open water or, or 400 IM or 200 butterfly or 50 free, everybody does the same training. Um, and so that was frustrating to me. And I didn't get good until I was able to, one, uh, find a, a coach after that. I, I always liked the coach. It wasn't, I, you know, uh, Pierre was his name. Um you know, a good guy, um, but not the right coaching for me. And uh, I didn't I didn't get fast until I found a coach that was um, more sprint oriented. Yeah. So you specialize in the 50 meter. And I mean, that is just a crazy race. Like for our listeners who aren't familiar, familiar with swimming, tell us what that's like. I mean, it's just so I feel like you guys have to be it's I mean, it's basically like the 100 yard dash. You have to be off the block quick. You have to just be on it. Yeah, it it has to be a perfect race. Um, it, it's so competitive. Um, if you look at, I mentioned Michael Phelps before, the most decorated Olympian of all time. He could not swim the 53. Um, he just wasn't fast enough to compete in that event. Um, he wanted to. He wanted to win as many gold medals. And he was obviously a great swimmer, the greatest of all time. I'll say that. Um, but he was not fast enough to compete in the 53 style. It has to be a perfect race um, in order to win. And the margins are so small, hundredth of a second. If you look at the gold medal that I won in 2000 uh, Sydney Olympics and the 2004 Athens Olympics, the cumulative margin of victory between my gold medal and second place for both of those Olympic Games was one one hundredth of a second. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So how do you it, get up it, for that? How do you get up for that when you're standing there getting ready to go on the blocks, knowing that you have to swim a perfect race to win? Well, that's what you practice for, you know, so that, you know, it's, you know, so that you can, uh, in some ways, you know, turn off the brain and, and make it automatic, you know, that it's just a, a response. Um, and, and uh, but there's Mark Spitz uh, once said that swimming was 90% mental, and that is not true. Um, <laughs> I cannot today get up on the blocks and swim faster than the, the, the best swimmers in the world, like I, no matter what I'm doing with my mind. Um, but at a certain level, certainly once you get to the Olympic Games, more than 90% mental. Right, that the, the uh, anybody that is in the finals or semifinals of the Olympic Games is physically capable of winning it. But the difference, 
at that point is mental. And I always loved the competition. That's why I swam. It's why I was able to train. I didn't love the training. Um, you know, it, it's swimming. You train for one meet a year. That's was my approach. Um, and, 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 uh, so, um, yeah, I, I focused on what I loved and, and that was the, the race and, and, um, yeah, it just kind of thrived in that pressure environment. Take us to that decision to switch coaches, because that seems like it must have been a pivotal, a pivotal shift for you to be able to focus more on sprint-focused training. How did you, at that age, recognize that you needed to make that choice? Uh, just, I, 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 I could tell that I just wasn't handling the yardage the same way, and it wasn't for you know, lack of it, it was lack of trying. Um, I, I was just like frustrated that, I, um, and so I, I remember, you know, asking to be able to, and that mega distance program that I mentioned, everybody swam the 500 yard freestyle. Everybody swam the mile. I was signed up every single meet for the distance events and it didn't matter what you thought you were. Everybody was a distance swimmer. So I remember, you know, saying, I, you know, I wanted to race, I wanted to do the 50 and the 100. And my coach, um, after a long time of pestering him about it, um, every for every meet entry, kind of age group, high school meets and stuff like that, um, he finally relented and said, it gave me this ridiculous time in the 50 freestyle. He says, okay, if you can go that time, I'll, I'll let you train, you know, be a, be a sprinter. Um, and he did, you know, he, he just picked an impossible time that he thought I would never be. Uh, yeah, I, that I, I definitely motivated me. And you did it? Oh yeah, I, I, <laughs> I smashed that thing. It's like I did not want to be in the distance lane anymore. That's amazing to me. Like, I'm trying to imagine me going from the mile down to the hundred. It's just like, I mean, we're obviously built differently, but it just would never happen. So it's amazing to me that you started there and you were able to find your way down to becoming an Olympic champion. Tell us about from when you started competitive swimming in around high school to getting to that first Olympic Games. Sure. So there was a joke up until my ju- through my junior year in high school, um, and I was a very tall it's probably six one and seventy four pounds or something like that. A tall, skinny kid, um, and I would jump out of the pool and wave my arms over my head and run around the silly kind of duck walk, orangutan stride, and say, "I'm going to the Olympics," and everybody would laugh because it was I, like it seemed so improbable, even though that my father was a, a swimmer, just based on my. All you had to do was watch me in the pool, and it just didn't seem like it was an option. <laughs> so it was, uh, you know, we'd get some laughs. Um, and then, you know, it, it was the summer after my junior year in high school that I actually had one big breakthrough meet, put me to the uh, junior nationals, crushed it at junior nationals, and uh, was the top recruit and uh, had, you know, college scholarship offers pouring in from all over the place. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I, I mean, up until that meet after my junior year, I did not think that swimming in college was an option. Wow. But then you went from there to Olympics <laughs> very quickly. So then, uh, yeah, so then a few I, years. I, I, 
Yeah, I, I ended up going to college, University of Texas in Austin for uh, a year. Uh, Eddie Reese has been the coach down there forever. Um, and great coach, multi-time Olympic coach, produced countless Olympians and world record holders and stuff like that. Three months after being in Texas, um, I, I went to Eddie. And uh, I, I, I've, I always liked Eddie. Um, I, I said I made the wrong decision. I, 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 this isn't the right place for me. Um, I really respected Eddie, but it was, it just wasn't the right program. Intuitively. I, I, I knew what I needed. There was a direction that I, I, I was beginning to figure out in, in, in how I should train myself. And, 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 um, it just didn't match up. I had a mediocre NCAA, uh, meet for Texas, and then um, that summer, I went back to uh, where I had been I'd grown up in Phoenix, uh, trained on my own, um, and qualified for the World Championships uh, in Rome. That was the first time I qualified for the U- United States national team, and went to the World Championships and uh, placed second behind the reigning Olympic champion and world record holder, um, missing out on the gold by just a, a few you know, tenths of a hundredth of a second. Uh, Ten, a couple tenths of a second um, in my events, and and um, thought, oh, now I've got a shot. I can. I, it wasn't until that summer after my freshman year in college that I had that other big breakthrough performance, uh, where I thought I could actually be uh, in the Olympic Games. Wow! So another pivot away from. I mean, Reese is the most decorated NCAA swim coach, right, in history, I believe. If I- <laughs> Yeah, if I'm uh, knowing my history, I do live in Austin, so I have to say, go go horns. But but that's amazing. So you make that pivot, you train on your own, you get to the world championships, and then you're on your way at that point. Yeah, I mean we're we're two years out um, from the 1996 Olympics, and um, yeah, I, I pretty much uh, dropped my eligibility after the world championships. At that time, I mean it was right around with the the dream team was 92. And so basketball was like one of the first that allowed professional athletes to compete in the Olympic Games. Swimming was not that way. If I accepted a plane ticket uh, to compete at a world champion, like uh, these meets, yeah, I was considered a professional athlete. So I dropped my collegiate eligibility and uh, enrolled myself at Arizona State. And uh, it was taking classes on my own as an a- uh, as a student, not a student athlete, and, and um, uh, continued to uh, train in Phoenix uh, for a few uh, uh, I, I had in, by 1995 uh, connected with Mike Bottom, who was a young swim coach, unproven. He had spent a season or two at Auburn University as an assistant coach. He was an Olympian himself. He qualified for the 80 Olympics. He's the youngest of the Bottom brothers. There were three brothers out of Santa Clara, California, and uh, training under the legendary coach George Haynes. Joe Bottom beat my father in the 76 Olympics in the 100 uh, Butterfly um, and, and uh, was a teammate of his. So he always knew Mike as the younger brother of these uh, three guys. And, and um, Mike had grown up, uh, qualified for the 80 Olympics. It was boycotted. So he didn't um, get to go and, and, and fulfill that, that dream of his. Um, he graduated top of his class in psychology at USC. And went into coaching instead of uh, practice, probably uh, in large part 
because he wasn't able to realize that dream of going to the Olympic Games. And ultimately, uh, through coaching, was able to achieve that, you know, go to the Olympics um, as a coach instead of an athlete. But um, it was uh, neat to connect with Mike because he was uh, finally uh, a person that I, I – uh, connected with um, and, and and who understood uh, from the psycho- psychology uh, standpoint uh, motivators and demotivators. And there were coaches like Eddie Reese who are incredibly successful, but it was a one size fits all approach. And if you, he, he was intuitive enough, Eddie was, that he knew to recruit the types of personalities that would flourish under his program. Um, but Mike was the first coach that I came across that was willing to adapt and adjust based on the personalities, not just the physiological makeup of, of who he was coaching. And so that was neat. And it, it, it certainly created more of an interest in me to kind of explore new ways to train. And I'm very proud of, of how innovative we were and some of the training techniques that we um, initiated together. Um, with a, a number of other great swimmers who all were contributors. We were all uh, on equal footing. There wasn't a coach up here and swimmers down here. Um, everybody was a, a contributor um, and trying to figure out how to make everybody better. And so um, working with Mike, that's when I, I just took off. Um, that's when I took off. And, and then I was a top-ranked uh, contender. Uh, going into 96 and and um, did really well there. Um, yeah, that's an understatement. <laughs> I'm curious, like you're, you were known for not racing super often, but being really hot when you raced. Were you already doing that back in 95, 96, racing not as much as your competitors? Uh, yeah, it, it, no, I, at that, that uh, yeah, at that time, um, I, uh, was was a, a terrible in season swimmer, and I would get so broken down. I told and I told you it's a a very long season that really I was only looking to perform at, at the big meet at the end of summer, and and so in the middle of winter I'd be so broken down, so slow, and 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 I'd catch so much flack for that. Um, people I didn't even know. And again, we were talking about expectations and stuff like that. I had a, a coach that I had never met before from Australia approach me at a World Cup meet in 95. And he pulled me aside and starts pressing his finger into my chest and was screaming. The spittle was like landing in my face about how I was not fulfilling my potential. And I was really just a piece of shit, basically. Yeah. Hmm. And um, so I hated that. I hated that. I, I, and I hated um, <clears throat> the, the criticism. I, I was highly criticized uh, through that time for these changes that I was making. <clears throat> In the 96 Olympics, uh, the national team director offered a bounty on an Olympic gold medal in the mile, a $1 million bonus to anybody that could win the gold medal in the mile. But that nothing, no bonus or anything for any of the other events. Hmm. And that just didn't seem right to me. And that kind of sums up the focus of the national team director at the time. Um, And and so being a sprinter, 
there were always people who said, oh, you're lazy because you're swimming a shorter distance. Like you can't, and, and <laughs> it drove me nuts. And so I just, um, I, I, and so many people that were in the sport of swimming can relate to that. Sprinters are lazy. That was, that's still a, a bias that exists today, but back then much, much more so. And so I probably because of that, um, I didn't like racing that much. I didn't like the attention at the, the meets. I didn't. And so I, 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 I would focus on one uh, meet a year. And I think I, I counted them out. I, I competed in like something like 22 swim meets over a 16 year career. Wow. Which is nothing. I mean, yeah. really, um, uh, there's now, uh, you know, there's, it, people, people do that many meets in a year. How was Atlanta for you? Obviously, you had success, as you already alluded, but what was that experience like? Well, having the Olympics in your home country, home court advantage, that was pretty neat because I had never been to a swim meet that big before. I'd been to the World Championships, and that was a big swim meet. But <clears throat> most of the time, you're at 5.30 a.m. swim practices, and uh, you've got one coach with a stopwatch on, on pool deck. And then one day you walk out and there's 15, 16, 17,000 people in the audience and a billion people watching on TV. Um, so that was my first big show. And to have the majority of the people in the seats there be cheering for you, you know, for the United States. Wow. Yeah, it makes. And if you've competed in the Olympic Games, you know that honor and, and pressure of representing your country. Um, and, and um, it was pretty neat, pretty neat. I really, really liked it. Um, what, what were the expectations for you there? <clears throat> um, I had, by the 96 Olympics, um, developed a rivalry with the uh, great Alexander Popov, who was the uh, previous Olympic champion in 92 and a world record holder. And he saw me as a threat. And in the 94 World Championships, my first time making a finals in an individual event, I would go to the ready room and uh, walked in late. And he went straight up to me and, and, and just told me that I was from a family of losers, that I had no business being there. And I, I was just shocked. I was a teenager. I had no I, I looked up to this guy. And... I, after that, uh, you know, I was, I'm thinking as I'm walking out to the starting blocks and there's this gun goes off, is that broken English or is he really an asshole? <laughs> and he was really an asshole. Um, he, he, so, uh, you know, I, I've heard from people that knew him and, and trained with him that he was a really, really nice guy until you were a threat. Um, that, you, you know, there were swimmers that weren't that good, but then all of a sudden they had a breakthrough and he tra treated them completely different after that happened. So I can understand and appreciate a competitive nature, a uh, desire to win. I share that uh, passion uh, with that guy, but I wanted to beat him. And uh, <clears throat> it, was a, it was a showdown. And I, my best performances at the 96 Olympics were in the, uh, uh, the relays. Um, the fastest relay split of all time ever. Um, and I took the United States from a, a body length behind it in third place um, to, to winning by a body length and a half. 
Um, and, and I placed second behind Popov in the 50 and the 100. Uh, by seven one-hundredths of a second in one of the races, 13 uh, one-hundredths of a second in the other race, I think is what I recall. Um, and and uh, I wasn't disappointed because they were best times. I felt like I'd stepped up and, and left it all out there, you know, put it all out there. And, and, and um, But I, I, I wanted to turn those silver medals into gold and uh, had to wait four years to do that in Sydney. That's an amazing first Olympics, like handling that pressure going in there. Did your rivalry ever, did it stay that way? Did you guys ever yes. like bro hug it out? No, it was no. just always intense. Yeah, we, we, we hated each other. Okay. And, um, and, and so that was the only real sincere, my best friends in the sport were also competitors. Mm-hmm. Uh, a guy like Mark Foster, a five-time Olympian from uh, Great Britain. Uh, I learned so much from him and we'd at the end of the season have to step up on the blocks and race against each other. But, you know, I considered Mark one of my best friends in the sport, John Olson, I was on relays with and, and, and trained together. But you know, a lot of the guys that I trained with, you know, I knew that we'd have to race at the end of the year and we could maintain a you know, friendship, but uh, not the case with Alex. And um, yeah, that was uh, intense at times. Knowing what we know now about the state sponsored doping, situation that happened in russia and their subsequent bans as a country because of it does that make you think back differently on that 96 experience or no yeah how uh there seems to be a lot of hard evidence that uh, there's systematic doping going on in russia um dating back quite a while does that frustrate you i mean you you yeah you did get your gold but knowing that you were potentially not in a level playing field that first time. I mean, I mean, I don't know. At this point in your life, do you think about that? I don't have any proof that uh, Alexander Popov was was taking anything performance enhancing. Um, so I, I, I have to, we all have to be very careful about accusations. I would I've sued um, for uh, defamation um, at one point, um, because I, uh, brought up, uh, the fact that Amy Van Dyken was, um, called to testify before a federal grand jury in the Balco hearings. And she was a teammate of mine in the 96 Olympic team. So I, I was outspoken at the time, all through my career about doping in sport, that it wasn't just potentially out there it was out there everybody recognizes that the cheaters were ahead of the testers and um I, it was frustrating it was really really frustrating but you had to be very very cautious in how you address this and how you phrased things um because he, he, he just didn't want to come across as like he, it didn't matter if you suggested that there was doping in the sport, somebody was going to say you're a sore loser. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, so it, it was, it was really frustrating. Um, yeah, I, I don't know that I would have done it any differently. Um, the way that I was spoken, outspoken. Yeah. Well, it seemed like you were outspoken when people just weren't outspoken yet. I feel like over the last four to six years, it's gotten more acceptable to be outspoken. Did you feel like you had support when you would speak out or did you feel like you were kind of on an island by yourself? Um, oftentimes on an island by myself. Um, I, I, I felt compelled to do it. Um, and, and, and it wasn't ever an accusation. 
through my career, I never accused Alex Popov of, of cheating. Right. Um, so I think that there's hard evidence now and, and, and more awareness of how pervasive doping is in sport, all sport, um, that wasn't there before. We have documentaries that have come out since the 96 Olympics. Uh, yeah, there's, uh, yeah, uh, scandal. Uh, it, but I remember at the 98 World Championship. So I, this, uh, this is probably how I, I, I took a position on this. Um, in the 94 World Championships, my first international swim meet, um, I was a teenager and the Chinese women won almost every single medal not just gold, almost every single medal at the world championships. Um, and I was at the warm-up, uh, the, the competition pool for warm-up. And one of these Chinese swimmers, a uh, female, um, got, I was standing on the side of the pool by the ladder and a female Chinese swimmer got up out of the water and just um, made me look uh, – physically minuscule it's just mm -hmm. and it just was so unnatural and 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 the voices had, were changed it was like the east german uh systematic doping and and everybody knew that they were cheating everybody knew that there was no coaching there was uh, the, their technique was terrible they were just hammering just with it and would not drop off at the end of the race i mean there was so much suspicion so much uh, murmuring going on in the, uh, the, the, the locker rooms. And, um, and, and so I, I knew right away that was my first exposure to international swimming, that there were cheaters out there. And my dad competed in the 76 games, 72 games, where East Germany um, you know, was, was doing that kind of stuff. So I had seen you know, from his career that you know, cheating uh, happens uh, in the sport of swimming. And that it's wrong and that I, it made me so mad. I mean, uh, that if I, you know, uh, robbed a gas station for a thousand dollars, I would go to jail. That's, that's wrong. But if you're an athlete that's cheating, you look at how much money Lance Armstrong made millions, and millions, and millions of dollars. He's taking that from somebody else that's clean. And he can argue that you have to go down layer after layer after layer after layer after layer that, oh, everybody's cheating. Um, but no, that's not true. You may have to go down a lot of layers to get there, but eventually there's somebody that's clean down there. Nobody knows their name. Mm -hmm. And he took millions of dollars from that person because that's a better athlete. That person is deserving if not of, of millions and millions and millions of dollars than at least hundreds of thousands of dollars that he never saw. And that seemed an injustice to me and that you could get away with robbing people because that's what it is um, in, um, in, in sport, but nowhere else. Um, and, and so I think that that probably that the interaction and, and seeing and then in 1998 at the World Championships, the Chinese women team were caught um, by Australian customs officials, not testers. Not anything. It was when they were entering the country, one of the customs officers opens up this teddy bear and it's just filled uh, with human growth hormone uh, vials. 
just is pouring out uh, and they're caught with enough human growth hormone vials to fuel an entire uh, a- anybody that would ever need that for whatever purpose uh, dwarfism or whatever it's used for um and so that probably was a big influence in the position that i took but also um yeah dating back i mentioned that i played baseball for a couple seasons I used to collect baseball cards. Uh, I was a big fan of baseball. would watch games and stuff like that. Sammy Sosa, Mark McGuire, Jose Canseco, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens. Every single kid that I looked up to as a kid who liked baseball not only proved to be cheaters, but total assholes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and they were just so self-righteous through all of that stuff. Uh, and it was just disgusting to me. And, and so I, that probably, that influence um, and, and the letdown of having childhood heroes like turn out to be cheaters, um, that probably compelled me to speak out um, against doping and sport. Generally, most of the time it was generally. It wasn't ever pointing a finger at one person um, and saying, that's a cheater. Um, the one time, the, the time that I did that was Amy Van Dyken when she was called alongside Barry Bonds and all those cheaters, uh, from the Balco scandal. And there was a federal grand, uh, jury investigation and she was called, uh, to testify privately. Um, and, uh, that was never, uh, released to the public, but I continued to ask the question, um, you know, why were you called to testify, um, in that, in that. And she did not like that. Right. Listening to you talk is like gospel to me. I love it. I'm wondering how you were able to continue on with your swimming career, knowing all this and having all these frustrations. I feel like there was... um... I, I, I felt like I, I knew I, I take I, I take that back. I knew that cheaters could be beat, not cheating. Uh, it, it, that you had to make up that ground somehow, and and this is how I knew it. And this is still uh, what I cite as the most the, the bravest swim that I've ever saw. I, I talked about the world championships in 1994 with the Chinese women. They won everything except for the 200 freestyle. There's this young girl, she must have been 15 or 16 years old, uh, from a, a newly united Germany, East and West Germany, the wall had come down. And Franziska van Almsick was her name. And she was an unproven swimmer, good in Germany. But she stepped up and in the 200 freestyle, won a gold medal against cheers. And um, I just, I remember being in the stands watching that swim, knowing that the Chinese were doping. And I, I still get goosebumps thinking, just talking about that swim. And that let me know that a cheater can be beat. That you got you to gotta make up the ground somewhere, somehow. Unfortunately, you know, sport had not evolved, especially in the sport of swimming. Um, you could make up that ground in nutrition. People weren't as nutrition conscientious as they are today. 
Uh, people weren't working on sports psychology type stuff. People weren't, didn't have uh, built out you know, core strength. Nobody was talking about that type of stuff or like the dry land training that we were incorporating. So I felt like I was able to make up uh, the ground. Um, and then also that, you know, a lot of the cheaters were not as talented, um, you know, so it was possible to beat a, a less talented swimmer uh, taking performance enhancing drugs. But once, you know, and, and once, you know, eventually very talented swimmers would start taking performance enhancing drugs. And I think that's where we are today. So um, it's still possible to beat cheaters, but um, that innovation and extra work um, is, is required and, and, and getting harder to make up. So you win, but you win anyway. You win gold in 2000, 2004 in the 53 and five gold medals in total across your three Olympics. Talk about maintaining excellence for that length of time as someone who is doing it clean. Well, um, I think the the mental stamina was the diff- most difficult thing, you know, that it's so, um, you just... Uh, consuming it's so consuming training at that level um you're training for eight hours a day and six days a week and it's it's following a black line back and forth in a swimming pool like it's boring uh you go absolutely insane and so what i did was I, I would take a year off after each olympic games after every olympic games i competed in, i would take a year off and uh, i'd stay active um, but I just kind of be on my own and, 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 you know, go swim every once in a while, but not, not training. I'd go play other sports, pick up games, basketball, you know? Um, but, uh, I think that, um, yeah, uh, it, without having taken those breaks, um, I, I, I wouldn't have lasted as long as I did in the sport. That's fascinating. Really? I mean, yeah. it, it seems like that wouldn't be a common approach. Yeah, I, I, again, I, like I said, I, I was criticized uh, for a lot of things I did. Um, that was one of them. Uh, people did not like, but I kind of, again, uh, going back to that uh, lazy bias, uh, sprinters. <laughs> the other thing we haven't mentioned yet that I want to get to, just because I don't know that as someone who followed your career at the Olympics, I don't think I knew this about you. <clears throat> But you were diagnosed in 99, I believe, with type 1 diabetes. So that's something else you were facing amidst also trying to be at the top of your sport. So talk about that diagnosis and how it impacted your training afterwards. Yeah, so I was training for the 2000 Olympics. I was a year and a half out, March of 99, diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. No family history of it. That's the autoimmune disease, not the lifestyle obesity um, disease. Uh, that's type two diabetes. Um, so type one diabetes is autoimmune disease. And, um, I don't know, it's completely out of the blue and I started experiencing all the symptoms. My vision got blurry. I was thirsty all the time. I was peeing all the time. I'd get shaky and lightheaded and feel uh, dizzy. And, and, uh, eventually I collapsed. I'd lost about 25 pounds. Um, by the time I did, uh, collapse and was diagnosed, uh, with diabetes and, um, yeah, I was told by two doctors that it was the end of my swimming career. Uh, I was, I did make it back um, to the games. Uh, there was no certainty in, in that pursuit when I 
thought I'd give it a try. I, I, um, a lot, I could talk a long time about it, um, and, and do frequently to diabetes groups. Um, but ultimately I, um, was able to wrap my arms around how to manage the disease enough that I would, it was able to get through a swim practice. And, um, and then it became, how do I get through two swim practices in a day? And so it was kind of starting at square one, learning. I, I couldn't do the same training that I was doing before I had diabetes. Um, I would, uh, it, it's a very, very dangerous disease. Um, that the drug that you take insulin, uh, is, is a very, very powerful drug. And if you miscalculate your dosing based on the carbohydrates that you're eating. So every meal, I, depending on the size of the pile of rice or pasta or pizza or whatever it is, any carbohydrate on your plate, um, I'd have to dose accordingly. And so you're eyeballing it. You know, there's no measurement uh, consistent uh, to that. So, um, yeah, there were, it was the trial and error process and a lot of error along the way. I ultimately became the first person with type 1 diabetes to qualify for an Olympic Games and the first person with type 1 diabetes to win a medal at the Olympic Games. And so ultimately that accomplishment set up a platform to advance diabetes advocacy efforts and get involved in diabetes research. Um, and I ran that, uh, those efforts uh, parallel to my swimming career um, after uh, 1999. So um, it was really the work in that space that I was doing that uh, allowed me to continue swimming. I, I, I didn't have any Olympic sponsors, no, no support um, for 10 out of the uh, close to 16 years that I was on the national team. And so it was what was supposed to be ending my swimming career with a diabetes diagnosis ultimately proved uh, to sustain it. That's so incredible. My sister-in-law has type one diabetes and I'm trying to imagine her swimming multiple races in a, you know, this tight competition, having to constantly check her levels. It really is just incredible that you were able to do that and figure it out and figure out a system for yourself. There was no playbook. It had never been done before. Doctors didn't think that it was medically feasible, uh, possible. Um, and so uh, working very closely with my endocrinologist, Dr. Ann Peters, who I cannot give enough credit to. I, I'm so grateful that eventually I found her and, and that I connected with her. And, and um, But what we did changed what they teach in medical school. Wow. That's fascinating and powerful that you've been able to give back so much to that community. It's something that uh, I'm very passionate about. Um, yeah, it's, it's great winning gold medals at the Olympic Games, but when you can make a diabetes diagnosis a little less scary for a kid and their family, that's worth more than gold medals. Um, so, um, yeah, it, it, it's and, and you know representing the United States of America, incredible honor. I mean, that is the biggest honor that any athlete can have. I don't, I don't care what the sport is. Um, it, it, to be able to step behind the blocks and represent not just the United States of America, but all people with diabetes, that 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 pushed me a little bit harder than I, I would have otherwise tried. I think. Um, your passion comes through strongly. I want to talk about speed suits for a second. 
because we have we have a parallel challenge in marathon running that is migrating its way to the track with track spikes as well of these new shoes you may have heard about them that give you an advantage over your competition and and so obviously you guys had a similar situation in swimming I think it was 08 when those speed suits were originally introduced. Eventually, they were banned or at least regulated heavily. As someone who is honestly a novice on that topic, take me through that issue itself and how you think swimming has handled it. Well, uh, the suit manufacturers that have been in the sport for a long time, Speedo, there's a number of others out there, they see the Olympic Games as a marketing opportunity. Um, so every, before every single Olympic Games, they'll release some new suit technology that'll have the commentators talking about it during uh, the broadcasting. And um, so I had seen before Olympic Games in the past these efforts to to really kind of Come out with some big, you know, the shark skin suit, uh, you know, before Sydney um, and then the speed suits uh, by 2008. And what this usually hogwash that the benefits were negligible, um, if there was any benefit at all, some of them weren't beneficial. Um, but 2008 something changed and this new release and i don't know how they got it approved by fina which is the international governing body of all uh, aquatic sport they got this uh suit fabric um approved that provided buoyancy so it's like a neoprene wetsuit like it's hard to submerge yourself if you're wearing a neoprene wetsuit um you float um and and what a fast swimmer at the Olympic level is able to achieve, the fastest swimmers are able to achieve, is a planing effect, like on a boat. Um, so if I were in a, a speedboat, I take the throttle, I, I push it all the way down, right? I floor it. The, the engine revs, it redlines, and, and you're going slow. The tip of the boat is up and then I'm walking you through this process. If you've ever been on the boat, you can, you can relate to this. And then what happens, it planes, it gets up on top of the water and the RPMs drop down and you're going 10 times as fast, even though the engine's working less hard. Um, and so the swimmers are able to achieve something similar in this planing effect. Um, and that's only accomplished through years and years and years and years of refined technique work that you were able to achieve that. Speed suits in 2008 completely negated all of that. Mm. They gave you the planning effect without having to rely on technique. Mm. And so if you look, especially in the sprint events, which benefited most from these suits, the physique of the finalists in 2008 Go back and compare them to the physique of any, because it was a strength-weight ratio before. Mm. You had to have incredible strength for a, you know, and a lighter build and, and have the flexibility. Like you could just couldn't be like muscle-bound and have strength without this thing. But by 2008, if you were able to get that planning effect, the, it emphasized the strength. And so you got these huge bulky guys that were, were just muscle 
pure muscle and just hammering their way through the water that didn't have the technique that would have allowed them to compete at the same level prior to the suits. Um, they were all good swimmers. Don't get me wrong. That's not a slight on any of them. Um, they were all great swimmers, um, but it was different. Um, so that's what happened. And then by the time, like every single world record had been shattered multiple times, um, Fina realized that this wasn't, that there was benefit to the suit and, and they had opened up this can of worms and, and, uh, retracted, um, that, that, that position on, on allowing these suits to, um, because that became the focus. It was, uh, you know, I, before these previous Olympic games, when they revealed the shark skin suit or whatever it was uh, before, um, I would always say it's the swimmer in the suit, not the suit on the swimmer. Hmm. Um, but it changed. 2008 um, changed that. And it, 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 the suit did matter. That's so fascinating because we have been dealing with that in running as well. So it's really interesting to hear that. I have... Yeah. Oh, go ahead. I remember in 2008, um, I'm sorry, uh, disgraced uh, runner from South Africa with the the, 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 the legs. Um, the... Oh, Oscar Pistorius? Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Uh, I saw him run in, in, in 2008 in Beijing. And um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, while I want to allow everybody to compete in, in, in sport and in, in play, like, is, is that considered a technology? Like, I, I, was, I was really intrigued at the time. Like, how he that that's clearly a, a technology um, and, and and questioning you know how the governing body allowed that um, without being you know um, discriminatory when everybody would be allowed to participate but yeah so it, it, that that seemed like a, a something that came to mind in track and field um, where. Um, and obviously, you know, to a lesser extent, there's shoe technologies and there things that are going to, um, and ultimately, I mean, that it's what we want. Everybody wants to be better. Everybody wants to figure out how to, and, and not just the athletes on the track, but, or in the pool, but, you know, the manufacturers, the people that sport is a competitive place. The people that are making sporting goods are competitive. Um, so how do they make a better product? How do we make better athletes? Um, so I, I can understand where it's coming from, uh, the effort. Um, you know, um, but uh, where do you draw the line? That's uh, How do we get consensus on, on what's okay and what's not okay? Totally. I love what you said about the swimmer in the suit, not the suit with the swimmer. Um, I love that. And I feel like that's applicable to running as well. Look, I have to ask you because we have you one of the reasons you stand out in my mind so much is not just your success but it was your personality at races and I was one of the people that just ate it up I love the boxing robe I love the trash talking can you talk to us a little bit about that like how did you get that confidence to share some personality out on the pool deck well I'd always been accused of walking to the beat of a different drummer <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I was always that uh, a little bit like a uh, weird off sense of humor, um, class clown kind of kid, you know, and, and, and uh, pulling outrageous pranks, you know, just hor horsing around, having fun, lighthearted. Um, and, and, and 
I was doing that in high school. I told you that story about running around saying, I'm going to the Olympics. I was like flexing and doing stuff behind the blocks <laughs> in high school when I was this like 76 pound kid that um, wasn't fast at all, you know, and it was really funny, you know, when I do it then. And it just like was something that I would do. It would take the edge off a little bit, um, you know, the pressure and stuff. And, I, and one of those things and it was, just having fun. Sport is entertainment. Don't we can't take ourselves too seriously? I'm not making the world a better place by swimming a 21.76 second swim. You know, I so I, it wasn't like I, I I never took myself seriously, and and that's where the line was drawn because you either loved it or you hated it. Mm-hmm. And the people that thought I was doing it seriously that it was just bravado and, and ego or what uh, they hated. People hated me. For that, I and, loved it. And, but but you know the, the people that were in on the joke, everybody was you know giggling about it and just you know. So it, it was really strange to see how that divide took place. Whether you know you you were amused by that, and people you know that initially hated it, eventually came around. Anybody that knew me know knows that I'm a really humble guy. Like I. I it, you know, I, I and, and so it, it was. It was funny, you know, to to a lot of us. And um, you know, I, I in the mid nineties, WWE, you know, was was all show and no sport, right? Like, and it was unfairly popular. Like at the time, like you know, you had the viewing audience of wrestling, professional wrestling, to swimming, and there was no comparison at all. And so I was like, well, why don't we just add a little bit of that? Um, but it, so that was an argument, but it wasn't a cause for it wasn't like, oh, I'm going to make the spot or sport more popular by creating this. I went to a sports psychologist. I mentioned that I went to so few swim meets. I hated the attention. I did not like the limelight, despite everything that you ever heard on NBC. All, I hated the commentators. Uh, when they would say, oh, he loves the spotlight. He loves, you know, the show. And, and I hated the show. I had to go see a sports psychologist to figure out how to deal with the show because I didn't want any part of it. And um, it was something that we came up with was to create a character to play. Mm. And so part of that was, one, was I had been doing horsing around. But, yeah, this just kind of evil Knievel type of bravado you know that was just kind of funny um really if you, if you were looking at it. but then there was also you know a, a seriousness to it too and, and you know um it, like i said I, there's a, a long story that i won't tell now i've told the story so many times about wearing the red white and blue boxing robe at the finals of the athens olympics i had the ceo of uh, the united states olympic committee come up to me years after it happened and said i can't tell you how many meetings I've been to. I, like, if I added up the hours of the meetings that I've attended because of what you did, it would extend into weeks. Weeks of my life I've dedicated on how we can prevent from what you did from ever happening again at the Olympic Games. Um, and because I, did, I, I broke the team uniform uh, policy, uh, which when you're talking about Olympic sponsorship, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, when you talk about Olympic sponsorship, uh, they're paying huge amounts of money. So, but it was uh, so fun, and you backed it up. I don't know. I love yeah. it. 
you had to back it up. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. You didn't back it up. Zabria pointing to the fence. You know, you better hit it out of the park if you do. So I knew that. Yeah. Well, I said you know it, it kind of alleviated the pressure, but it also created a lot of pressure too. And I always uh, thrived on a pressure situation. But that's part of the problem with the governing bodies of sport is that they don't create space for the athletes to to speak, to be themselves, whether it be goofing around or creating a show like you did or by voicing your opinions about doping and clean sport. And that's part of the reason why we have this podcast and part of the reason why we have people like you on is to share those voices and amplify them. So let's talk about that and the future. Obviously, the swimming culture, at least in terms of the ability to speak out, has evolved somewhat with Lily King and Matt Corton and others speaking up about some of the things that they see in the current state. What do you think needs to be done to change the culture in swimming for the better? Traditionally, uh, swimming is such a uh, repressed sport. I mean, he, I, I often have joked that, you know, swimmers develop their social skills by keeping their head underwater for eight hours a day, <laughs> right? So a lot of them, even if they have a voice, it's underwater and you can't be heard. <laughs> uh, but it was a, 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 a sport of conformity. Like I said, there was no individualized training when I first got into it. It, was, it didn't matter if, what your event was, if you were a faster slit twitch muscle fiber makeup, everybody did the same. Um, so, uh, I remember, uh, in 96, uh, there was a new, uh, executive director of USA swimming and, um, he was coming in and he had heard these stories that I was really unruly and, and, and just, you know, difficult, um, because I did have a voice because I, I was speaking up because I was talking about a union, uh, about organizing athletes and stuff like that. And so I was really, it kind of is a, a very uh, cautious approach that he took to me. And he says, what do you, and I, I had no idea. I, I completely forgot this conversation, but I heard him tell this story many, many, many years later. And he said, so I had heard all these things about Gary Hall and I go and I meet with him and I said, Gary, what do you, what do you hate more than anything? And I said, single file lines. And he, <laughs> he was laughing about it. And I just like, Swimming to me was a single file line, a, a circular, circling line. You follow the line, you know, you go down on the right side, you come back on the left side of the black line. But I mean, it's a single file line continuously. And so I just didn't identify with that. And I didn't feel like I was doing anything weird by talking about doping. Like, I didn't think that was courageous. I was just, you know, this is the opinions I hold. I'm not making accusations. I, I think we all can... You know, uh, assume that this is happening. Um, why isn't anybody else talking about it? I didn't understand. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I just, um, you, you gotta be you. Um, you'll be a lot happier if you, if you are. And what do you, so what do you want to see the governing bodies do or the testing bodies? How can, in your opinion, it be cleaned up? Yeah. Um, so I, Good question. Um, you know, I, I uh, private investigators, mm -hmm. 
I, you know, if, if, if we put, if there's suspicion or accusations and stuff like that, if you put a private investigator on something like that, you could get hard evidence pretty quickly. Um, we already give up all of our rights. You know, we have to let them know where we are and, you know, so they can show up randomly and test us. Um, and I think that most athletes wouldn't mind if the benefit was clean sport. Um, you know, being open to that investigation, but, um, you know, then you start talking about, is that secret police or what What does that look like or anything like that? But, I mean, it wouldn't take a private investigator very long to, to uh, investigate and, and identify if there's um, irregularities and uh, training cycles, um, you know, uh, yeah, that type of stuff. Um, so I, I, I would suggest that. That's interesting. I mean, testing is obviously pervasive, but, but I no, don't. It's not good enough. It doesn't work. We know it doesn't work. Testing does not work. Um, unfortunately. Why, why is that from your perspective? Because R and D investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at pharmaceutical and, and nutritional supplement industries, both multi-billion dollar a year industries, the pharmaceutical uh, is trillion, like a trillion dollars. But look at how much nutritional supplements. So if you're a nutritional, let's put sport on the shelf for just a second. I'm a chemistry major or whatever it takes to get into drug development um, or, or, or nutritional supplement development. The objective is human performance enhancement. You, you want people to live longer. You want them to be stronger, more resilient to infectious diseases. So all of that research is to develop things that make the human body better, perform better. With that much investment, dollars being applied to you know, those industries, uh, what is the investment of the testing agencies that are going into and the pharmaceutical industry, they won't work. They won't work with the uh, testing agencies. So uh, I mentioned in 1998, uh, the um, Chinese team that was caught with all the human growth hormone. All of those were manufactured by a company out of the um, Denmark, uh, Novo Nordisk. Mm. And those vials have tracking numbers on them. It's a controlled substance. Hmm. So that company had the information, has the information, that those vials were sold, where they were shipped, the, and, and can track that they were purchased by the Chinese government. And that they went through this uh, you know, um, uh, pharmacy. Um, or were signed over to this person and what their ties were with sport, stuff like that. That's where I'm saying a private investigator would be able to track that stuff. Yeah. Easily. You follow, if you follow what I'm saying, you know, it, <laughs> yeah. it's possible. I agree. Wow. I love it. But, I think- but, but, 
the CEO of Novo Nordisk at the time, who's long gone, uh, I had it told me this that he knew that he that it, that, it, that it went to the Chinese government that it that it was made its way to the athletes, and the testing agency Travis Tiger um, he very very smartly went to these companies and they are able in their drug development to put markers in these products that would help testers identify cheaters. It's such a large, this is how pervasive it is. It's such a large percentage of their business. They would never do them that. They would never do that. There's an obligation to the stakeholders, the shareholders, the investors in the company Hmm. to sell drugs. And there is a legitimate purpose for these drugs and addressing very serious disease. I wouldn't be alive if it weren't for Novo Nordisk and the insulin that they make for me to be alive. I'm very appreciative of these companies, but they could do a better job of working, creating markers that would help. But the problem is there's so many athletes out there that are cheating, bodybuilders or whatever, I don't even know about that, that they, they, they can't. It's just too much money. Wow. Well, that I think tells that story really well. It's much bigger than testers, than a testing agency, than athletes themselves. So, thank you for sharing that perspective on it because I don't think we've I don't think we've talked about that in that way on this show so far. No. Kara, final word. Oh, I mean. I don't know. I just, this has been an awesome conversation, Gary. I was already a fan, but this is just elevated. I love your honesty. I love your passion. And I don't know. I I just can't thank you enough for giving us the time. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the more we talk about this kind of stuff, uh, the better. Um, You know, it's the only thing that, you know, we, in order to solve a problem, you have to talk about it. Um, And and so by you doing that and, 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 it is courageous. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there that just um, will criticize anybody that wants to talk about this. Um, that was the way it was for me. So I, it, it's very encouraging for me to see that there's people like you out there that are, that are taking the torch and continuing to address this because I'm retired from sport now. I care less about it now. Um, uh, doping in sport than I did as an active athlete, but um, it, only slightly so. My daughter is 14 years old. She tells me I want to, you know, be an athlete. I want to be a swimmer, and 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 putting them signing them up for sport. Um, it's it crosses my mind. Like sure. they're going to have to make a decision at some point whether they cheat or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so thank you for continuing to talk about it and continuing to address it because we haven't figured out a a solution. We haven't fixed the problem yet. Um, and, and, but talking about it is, is, um, a starting a a, a great, um, way, way to, uh, find some resolution. Well, we appreciate that. And thank you for being so bold and outspoken about it. I can see why you might have been a polarizing figure in in your day, but I love it as well. So thanks again for the time, Gary Hall. Hey, my pleasure. Gary Hall Jr., everyone. Thanks to him for joining us. Thanks to him for being so honest and open with us. We really appreciate it. 
Thanks to all of you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about the Clean Sport Collective, you can go to cleansport.org where you can learn more as well as sign the pledge and encourage others to sign the pledge. And then, of course, you can follow us on social media at cleansportco. That's at cleansportco on Twitter and Instagram to join in the conversation. Otherwise, we've got episodes coming to you every single week. So please keep listening and we'll talk to you then.